Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Foundation, and I'm really excited to uh, be introducing our, our first panel today. Uh, this event was kind of a long time in the making for us. It it dates back to conversations that we've had with Perk, um, you know, almost over a year now. And so, for this day to to be here is really exciting. Um, we have a, a real star-studded lineup uh, for both panels today. Uh, and what I'm most excited about is you know the people on all of these panels. Uh, and their uh, love for uh, and enthusiasm for being outdoors. Um, you know, whether it's hiking, fishing, uh, biking, uh, hunting, conservation broadly, uh, you have people who are really connected to the resources that we're talking about here, and it's, it's really built in their DNA, um, which is uh, fantastic to have because they have a, a wealth of experience uh, and of knowledge um, to talk about these issues, uh, and they've built a profession talking about these issues, and we're going to have some productive conversations today uh, as to how to build in market principles uh, into the challenges uh, that come with federal lands management and the opportunities to uh, solve some of those challenges. Uh, at Heritage, we're also really thrilled to be co-hosting this event with PERC. Um, I had a chance to be to be out there uh, this past summer, and it was a, a wonderful experience. I've used their resources uh, for years now, and it's really helped shape my line of thinking when it comes to uh, economic principles and environmental stewardship. Uh, and I would encourage you to all check out the resources that we have outside, but also obviously online, and we're very fortunate that, that PERC is well represented here today, uh, that so many of them traveled east uh, to participate in these discussions um, because of their wealth of, of knowledge. Uh, a few housekeeping notes um, that I wanted to uh, mention before we kick off the first panel. Uh, one, if you could please check to make sure your cell phones are turned off or on silent to not interrupt the discussion, that would be awesome. Uh, secondly, for the first panel, we're going to have written Q&A, uh, so there's going to be two gentlemen flanking the aisles um, with note cards and pens. Uh, if you have questions, just please flag them, uh, write your name down and your uh, affiliation if you want at attribution to your question, um, and we'll try to rifle through those a as quickly as possible. Um, lastly... We have eight panelists and two moderators, um, all with a great deal of accomplishments. Uh, so reading their exhaustive bios would probably take enough time that would take us into the reception. Uh, so we're not going to do that. We're going to skip the, the formal, formal introductions, but there's speaker bios outside uh, if you want to learn more. And you'll hear more about their personal experiences with federal lands management uh, throughout these discussions. Um, and with that, I'd like to turn it over to Brian Yablonski uh, and quickly introduce him. Brian has been uh, the executive director of PERC since the beginning of 
2018, but as uh, a long affiliation with PERC. Uh, served as the board member since 2013 and an adjunct fellow since 2003, uh, and spent uh, a great deal of time at the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, too. So I can't think of a better host uh, and moderator for our first panel. Great. Thank you, Nick, and thank you to Heritage Foundation for partnering with us, and thank you to our panelists uh, being here today. Uh, real quick, Perk, uh, for those who don't know, we are based out of Bozeman, Montana. Um, so a lot of our staff made the trip uh, all the way from uh, the cold, snowy weather that uh, hit us recently. We're about a 40-year-old conservation research institute uh, that has pioneered uh, a line of conservation called free market environmentalism where we look at markets and entrepreneurship and property rights and innovative ways to actually advance conservation. And uh, at its core, we believe incentives matter. Um, we, uh, we have done a lot of research on how to create better incentives for public land managers like the folks up here. Um, so this is exciting to be up here with some of my public lands uh, heroes who have to do this day in and day out. Well, I just get to think and opine on this. Uh, and, um, and as you might guess, uh, for those who aren't familiar with Bozeman, Yellowstone National Park is our backyard. So, um, so while we are very intense in the office during the weekday, we get to do research on the weekends in the National Park System and the Forest Service System and all of our great public lands there. So we are, we're vested in the sense that we're, we're vested and we're invested in the sense that we are public lands users probably more than the average American, uh, by tenfold. And so, and we love, we love our public lands when we're out there. Um, and why, you know, this particular panel today, public lands um, are relevant and they are very newsworthy right now. If you're looking in the news of some of the, some of the big news stories we look at, and we'll, we'll touch on the wildfires that are going on in California. Um, we've got record visitation in our national parks, which is straining a lot of our infrastructure. And I'm not sure we anticipated that there was going to be this, you know, blooming interest in the parks and the growth that we saw after years of, of sort of flat visitation rates. And then all of a sudden we had a nice spike within the last few years. Um, BLM lands and grazing conflicts that we have with livestock and wild horses and burrows and, and issues like that that are, that are in the news as well. So again, public lands, uh, they're relevant and specifically federal public lands that we're talking about here. It's 640 million acres that the federal government manages. And up here among the four agencies that are represented, 610 million of that 640 million acres is sitting here at the table today. To give you some sense of scale, because unless you're a, a lands geek like me, 640 million or 610 million acres might not mean anything to you, but 610 million acres is essentially 3.5 France's, the country of France, three and a half times. Or if you're more familiar with Montana, and if you watch like the election night politics and when the Montana map goes red, you know, it looks like half the country goes red, right? So this is almost seven times the state of Montana. So picture seven Montanas and that's what this group here is actually having to manage. So we have with us today uh, the agencies that are responsible for stewarding and allocating the use of these landscapes for the use and benefit of the of the public, and they are uh, with us. We've got uh, Dan Smith uh, with the National Park Service. He's the National Parks uh, Deputy Director and the Acting Director. Uh, we have also with us um, Casey Hammond. Casey is the Deputy Assistant Secretary at BLM, 
And I can't, I'm looking over to see Chris. We got Chris French over there who is the acting deputy chief with the Forest Service. And then way at the end is a, a fellow Florida friend of mine, Marshall Critchfield, uh, who is an advisor uh, with the uh, office, the secretary's office of uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. So, and um, is here today to, to help us with the, the fish and wildlife uh, side of the land management equation, which are the National Wildlife Refuges. So, um, so with that, since I've I've kind of introduced you all, but I thought what I would do real quick is have you go through and talk about your agency briefly and the public lands that you are actually uh, responsible for managing. So, um, Dan, I guess I'll start with you. Right next. Time. Thanks, Brian. Uh, National Park Service uh, consists of 418 units, about 84 million acres. Uh, uh, people identify with our national parks the most, but we certainly are responsible for historic areas, uh, battlefields. Uh, we, we have many nomenclatures for what we manage. Um, we're viewed as a Western uh, uh, agency, but the truth of the matter is we have tr we have uh, units in every single state, and so we're we're probably the most national of, of probably. Uh, of any of any of the land management agencies, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, certainly has a lot of that too. But um, depending on where you talk to, people view our national parks differently. Um, uh, by legislation, we're we're all uh, very very many different authorities for what we do manage, whether it's for historic preservation or for natural resource management. Obviously, a lot of what we'll discuss today is on that natural that natural side. Um, Tremendous uh, uh, interest in, in Alaska parks because of the Alaska National Interest Lands legislation in the 1980s, which uh, made such a difference in that great state of Alaska as far as management of, of the park service. And uh, we are an interesting agency because so much of our legislation is so exact on what Congress wants to allow or not allow. Unlike the Forest Service, we're closed until open and... Uh, when you want to talk about a park service issue, you have to almost talk about a specific unit or a specific type of unit to really decide how broad our authority is to allow various things. Uh, hunting and fishing is one of the major issues. People are surprised that we do provide for as much hunting as we do, but all of that is authorized in, in statute where we do allow mostly in our preserve areas. And... Uh, and, and fishing is, is much more prevalent in the parks than, than some people realize, but uh, it becomes an issue. The hunting issue is one of the key ones that, uh, uh, again, Congress does allow that authority, but it always makes an issue when you talk about hunting in, in national park units. Uh, I, I know there will be many more questions, but that's just a brief overview of, of, of what we are about. Our visitation, uh, it is, we're blessed with tremendous visitation, and we're cursed with, with such amazing visitation. Uh, the Utah example is the one that comes to mind now. Um, they started that wonderful ad campaign on television about visiting the five. And visitation has doubled or more than doubled in all of the units in Utah. So a very successful campaign, but one that has left us with people waiting in lines for hours to get into the, especially into Arches and Zion. Um, it's a, it's an issue we're dealing with and it'll probably come up today in, in some way, shape or form. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you today and I look forward to all the comments that'll be made. Casey, I've, so I've heard BLM is kind of the land that the homesteaders didn't take or want, right? Is that the? Is there a little bit of truth to that, or is it? Let's just say no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, but, and, and and 
Uh, one quick correction. We do have the, the many acres you talked about uh, earlier, but we also have the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, and there are 1.7 billion acres that we manage in the outer continental shelf. So we have a vast mission. Um, I work for uh, the Assistant Secretary for Lands and Minerals. We have, as I mentioned, uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, but also the Bureau of Land Management, and there are 245 million acres of, of surface uh, that we manage, as well as there's 700 million acres of subsurf- subsurface that we that we manage, and we also have the Office of Surface Mining. Um, so we have a vast mission, and it's an exciting mission, and um, with all due respect to Danny, I think we probably have um, the, the, the most exciting mission as well, because we get to manage under uh, multiple use, which means we don't only have a conservation mission, we also get to manage for um, other economic uh, uses, such as oil and gas, coal, um, uh, and um, other other uses for uh, economic gain. So we have an exciting mission. It's an important mission, and our secretary has provided us with great leadership, setting us on a course to um, always use best science, best practices when we tackle these challenges. Um, thank you. Great, thank you, Chris. So you're you're the one agency here that's not in the Interior Department. That is true. Why, why is that? <laughs> Well, that's a long story, actually. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating one when you look at the history of how the, the forest uh, preserves were put together. But yes, we're with um, USDA, Department of Agriculture, the Forest Service. We manage 193 million acres um, across the country, uh, not quite as dispersed in every state like the Park Service, but um, pr- pretty well split uh, across almost the, the entire East Coast, but a lot of large areas in, in the West Coast. We also manage uh, uh, national grasslands. Um, and so that is our, our mission is very similar to the BLMs in terms of this multiple use management uh, mission. The other part that I'll, I'll say beyond just managing, I think um, the, the largest forest preserve, I mean reserves in the country. We also um, maintain the largest wildland firefighting force in the world, um, and we have the largest um, forestry research. Um, department in the world. And so if you look at the mission of the Forest Service, it is really broad. Um, and so our focus is not just on um, the conservation and, and management of these national forests and grasslands. It is, it is to provide uh, world-class research into forestry science, fire science. Um, we also have a wood products lab that looks at um, how do you develop new materials and, and bring them to market in, in broader ways. So it's a, it's a really wide, diverse um, mission. But most importantly, I think the thing that I, I enjoy about, um, and I've worked for the Forest Service for over 25 years, is that there are deep connections that I feel in each community to those forests that they're a part of. And so people um, associate with our national forests in ways that go much beyond um, just the, the products and services that you receive off of those, but it's families, it's history, it's time that they've spent in these places. And that's a great thing to be a part of. Yeah, well said. Thank you, Chris. Marshall, uh, tell us about the Fish and Wildlife yeah. Service and the National Wildlife Sure. Thank you, Brian. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation. It's great to be here. I work for the Assistant Secretary for Fish and Wildlife and Parks. And in that hallway, we cover the National Park Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, I'm here on the whole thing, but um, I will speak on behalf of the Fish and Wildlife Service as as it relates to land management. Um, We only had about 45 million visitors uh, last year on more than 300 refuge units of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And the great thing, some new developments are we have uh, increased access to hunting and fishing 
on a um, almost every unit now allows hunting and or fishing. So that's been a huge increase uh, since we got there. Uh, also, I'm excited about, and I know the secretary is big on this, our urban refuges. Uh, a, a very exciting way to um, teach conservation to underserved communities closer to the cities. And so, you know, part of everything we're doing involves the messaging and setting up that next generation of conservationists. And, and those are two ways that we've been able to do that. And I saw that the secretary had recent action on the nation's very first uh, national wildlife. There was an extension week. at Pelican Island, which was... Um, the first national wildlife uh, refuge in Florida, and uh, by President Teddy Roosevelt, which is uh, my boss's idol, I think it's fair to say. Excellent. Well, I was thinking before jumping into a lot of the hot button issues that you all are are, are handling. Um, what I wanted to ask was sort of a, a, a sort of a step back and a more personal question to everybody, which is. You know, do each of you, I, I can look back on my life and, you know, whether it's a child visiting a national park unit or um, backcountry camping, you know, in some of our uh, forest lands and, and national parks or being on a, on a refuge to hunt. And, but a lot of us um, have that special moment that connects you to public lands, you know, a, a memorable moment in your life that said, wow, this is, this is really special. And I just, I didn't know, for, for me, I was, I was, I was joking with these, the panel a little bit beforehand that um, I had a, a bison herd in Badlands National Park uh, while I was backcountry camping sort of chase me around a little bit. <laughs> I, was, I was just trying to, to get out after a couple days and the herd uh, kind of kept, I was trying to get around and they kind of kept moving. I thought, wow, where else in, where else in the world can I have a herd of bison sort of attuned to my movements and checking me, you know, as I'm just trying to trying to make my way out without a without a human being in sight. But um, do each of you have one of those special public lands moments that you can recall with either from your childhood or in the jobs that you're in right now? Uh, Marshall, what's yeah, the start? Yeah, I'll the take that. Uh, the truth is I try to have one or two public lands moments a month, you know, especially now after working at uh, Interior for almost two years. Uh, I have a better roadmap that everybody, frankly, has for public land. But um, I, I do as much with my family as I can. I enjoy the George Washington Parkway, um, Shenandoah National Park. So I, I'm after it. I, I love the outdoors, and I love to experience it. Uh, I think in terms of personal history, to be camping on a Chiquee or a beach island in Everglades National Park, and there's sharks and alligators and crocodiles, and a number of other things that keep the average person away, <laughs> rightly so. I think that's where, you know, you're, you're out there with a few friends, and you're fishing, and you're just enjoying yourself, and you look around, and you think this is way beyond anything you could buy. Yeah. And so I think that if I had to pinpoint one or two key public lands moments, that's, you know, that's camping and fishing, and those are two of my favorite things. So I, I would go with Everglades National Park. Cool. Surprisingly. <laughs> How about you, Chris? So, you know, I think <clears throat> as a kid, I spent a lot of time recreating, hunting, fishing in general with my family. I don't think I made the connection at that time uh, to what public lands were. And I think that moment came for me when I was a teenager and, and actually had taken my first position with the Forest Service and didn't know much about this and didn't know what I, you know, the 
what it really represented. And um, I got sent out to uh, essentially work on a fence and um, restore an area that was an access to uh, some stock water. This was in southern Arizona on the Coronado National Forest. And uh, I met with the local permittee out there, the rancher out there. And uh, he sat me down for about 35 minutes and just said, look at everything around you. Look at what this represents. And then I want to talk to you about my family and how long we've been here. Um, he had in his truck uh, a copy of two books. One was a Sand County Almanac, and the other was a, it was, it was an autobiography or a biography on Teddy Roosevelt. And um, he just talked to me about this heritage and the importance. And I remember driving up the mountain that day and just going out on a rock cliff and overlooking the valley where we had had that conversation. And I just kind of had that moment like, wow. Now I want to be a part of this. Like the idea that these are set aside for everyone and the way that we connect to that, that was huge. And so I still remember that. That's neat. Casey? Right. So I think really it's a couple things. The easy one's Yosemite, growing up going to Yosemite. And, um, you know, that's just kind of an easy one. But I think if I really think about it, um, if there's a moment, it would be when I was 10 years old and hiking with my brother and my dad um, on the John Muir Trail in the uh, high Sierras. And uh, the day we passed through, um, went through Bishop's Pass, who knows what elevation, the sense of accomplishment as a 10-year-old and his first time in the high Sierras, um, making it to that, uh, to that, that peak, um, is something that always stayed with me. And, and as we went through the trail, I think we did 60 miles, um, you know, you learned, uh, I learned to appreciate, um, the different designations as you went through them, different uh, jurisdictions, and um, it's something that's always stayed with me. And and, the, and, and like Chris was saying, um, the fact that it's set aside for everyone and that we had that opportunity and, and other people can have that opportunity, that's um, something that's especially unique to us as Americans. Yeah, thanks. Dan. Dan now, Dan, I hear, I hear from a lot of people, so you can't use this one, but Grand Teton National Park, people, the first time people lay eyes on that, if you're coming out of Yellowstone and you see that, uh, great sort of sawtooth panorama is pretty special yeah. for folks. I'm fortunate. You know, because of my federal career, I've seen about 275 <laughs> of the units. Uh, first one, though, was with my grandfather to see a sunrise at Acadia National Park. My, Maine's my home state. And I lost my grandfather when I was very young, so that is a memory. As far as an aha moment, I'll go to Alaska. On my three visits to Denali uh, in the 1980s when we were there for uh, implementing ANILCA, I first saw Denali when the clouds were at about 1,000 or 1,500 feet off the, off the valley floor. The second time that I was there, the cloud cover was about halfway up, probably maybe at 10,000 or 12,000 feet. And then to be there when it's fully there at 21,000 feet, blue skies, that's why you know it's Denali. And... Uh, uh, that that has never left my mind to to, to see that in its in all of the, all of its glory while we were while we were there you know planning for the future so uh, but we could sit here and tell tell stories I think all of us uh, if well, I'm we, envious I mean you you all get to see those moments probably every day in your jobs and uh, I know. I know out west I, I get to witness some of that too. So so we know we're you know everybody here is very passionate about public lands. Why should why should the rest of America care about public lands? I mean what's you know and, and here here's a sort of interesting question to think about too. Forty seven percent of the West is federal public lands, but only four percent east of the Mississippi is federal public lands. So why you know specifically why should Easterners care about what appears to be a big Western holding? Anybody? <laughs> 
I can give you a quick answer on that. It's because being the sole proprietor of any trail worth hiking would be cost prohibitive for nearly 100% of all Americans. So it's, it's a, it's an interest as an American. If you want to go hike a trail, pretty much the only place you can do that is on public lands, except for a select few. And, uh, most of these stories involved hiking that first, you know, to, to get them hooked. You know, it's like bringing a, a young person fishing, taking a kid on a, on a, a terrific trail is, um, I would equate to catching your first bass, you know, from my perspective. I would say in the East especially, I mean, if you look at the number of national forests that we have across the East, they are places that are centers of focus for the communities that they're a part of. They're drivers of the economy. Um, they provide, um, they bring in a lot. If you look at the growth in the recreation economy, especially in the East, um, it is dramatic to see places like North Carolina, Tennessee, um, Vermont, Maine, places where people are coming in to find those spaces for, um, as you mentioned, hiking, but paddling sports, OHV use, those sorts of things. So they become these destinations, and they really um, affect those communities they're a part of. In addition to that, most of these communities, there's also there's a history of small rural areas dependent upon a resource extraction coming from those, whether it's timber production or water production. I mean, we often talk about water production and the, the amount of water production in the West that comes off of national forest lands, but many of these eastern uh, forests also provide the, the headwaters for or reservoirs um, that provide municipalities um, waters for those systems. So, I mean, it's a, it's a broad range of uses. And I, and I think the final thing I'd say is that, um, you know, if, besides the connections people have, I would say it increases property values. You know, having those sorts of spaces in and around your communities, especially in, in more densely populated areas like the east, um, those large um, public lands actually add to, to folks' bottom line in their, in their homes. I think that's that's huge. And it sounds like that's kind of the wave of the future, too. I mean, we look at sort of an economy that's moving to an amenity recreation-based economy as well, right? And so that, that might be driving some of the, the allure of being next to public lands. Uh, I, I think it's one part. But, I mean, they're, they're, the, the continuation of resource extraction and the conservation of those resources, especially um, in, in places like southeast Alaska or in the west, is a continuing... I mean, if you look at the, the difference in those sorts of jobs in some of those small communities, um, that's, that, those are huge. So it is this broad, integrated spectrum of uses off these public lands that are driving those local economies. I don't think it's just, just one. And, and unique to you all in this, and Chris and Casey, I mean, you can jump on this. The, I, unlike the National Park Service, which, you know, uh, manages for sort of preservation and, and use of enjoyment of the public, and the wildlife refuge system that, that primarily has wildlife as its, as its priority, I think the only system that has wildlife as part of its mission. But your agencies are multiple use, right? I mean, it's I, like I drive into the Gallatin National Forest and the science is land of many uses, right? So do you want to talk about how your mission is different. I know you alluded to it a little bit at the introduction, but sure. all the competing uses that you have to consider when you manage that perhaps Dan and Marshall don't. Sure. And to answer your original question, I think Marshall and Chris hit it. Everyone has a stake. Every American has a stake in this. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone has a piece of it. Everyone has a stake in it. So it pays to be informed. Um, 
what is going on. Decisions are happening every single day. These are complex issues, and they require public involvement. But in particular with BLM and our, our multiple-use mission, uh, like you said, I touched on it a little bit, but uh, we're much broader than just conservation and recreation. That's a huge and emerging part of what we do, but we also have the ability to 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 unleash this this energy um, potential in the country, and that's been a big focus of ours. And that, like Chris was talking about, that has uh, major benefits for rural economies um, and for the country at, at large when we build our energy independence and security from the resources that we have right here in our country. Um, so, that, like I said, that's the exciting thing that we get to do is is balance those those. Um, those, those, that, that multiple use mission that isn't mutually exclusive. And that's, that makes it even uh, more challenging, but more exciting. And that we get to find ways to where these things can happen together, where you can have recreation, where you can have energy development or other, um, extractive industries. Right. And again, the talking about the, uh, National Park Service being created by legislation, uh, the eastern, the eastern seaboard's not public land states and, to have what people now take for very granted with all of our seashores on the East Coast, which was an idea that developed in the 1960s and has come forward. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the, uh, the activity still going on with our Civil War battlefields that certainly tell the story of that, uh, unbelievable time in our history, but also provide tremendous recreation. Uh, the, uh, development of, of wild and scenic rivers in the East, uh, Cuyahoga Valley coming in, uh, in, in Ohio, uh, it's a, it's a history that if you look at us only from a Western perspective out of the public land states, the Eastern, uh, development of the parks is a, is an unbelievable story within itself. And it provides tremendous recreational opportunity and educational opportunity for the, for the population crescent that is in the East. Mm-hmm. That, that area from Maine down to now down to the Carolinas, I forget what it's up to as far as the percentage of the American population, but we are the areas, certainly with the Forest Service. I had a chance to be White Mountains for a meeting earlier this year. Uh, between the Forest Service and, and us in the east, uh, you know, it's the recreational uses is, is phenomenal. Uh, and, uh, and, and the Park Service history on all that, again, that it's as recent as the 1960s coming forward is, is rather remarkable. And it, and it may not be big acreage, but in your case, it's, you know, parkways, it's the battlefields, as you mentioned, it's a historic site. So in the east, while it may be a small number, the presence of the Park Service, um, you know, parkway scenic, you know, trails, you know, sea, national seashores, uh, that all falls within the Park yeah, Service. And I, and I wouldn't want to leave out the, the people who had the early thoughts for the Appalachian Trail that mm-hmm. intertwines with the Forest Service and up, up that whole spine of the Appalachians. Uh, it couldn't happen today. Uh, but it's an amazing, you know, an amazing idea that that uh, that was brought forward, and and you know, literally has millions of people that touch it every year. Right. The other thing to keep in mind here too is beyond recreation. I mean, I, we manage close to seventy-seven thousand permits, permits for folks to take do activities on federal public lands, and it can. And so, one of the areas I wanted to highlight in that is um, communications, cell phone towers. Rural broadband, mm-hmm. all of those things are sited in these high areas, peaks. Um, they're often looking to public lands, especially in the east and west, to provide those. Um, beyond that is business, many, many businesses depend upon um, actually selling those services, whether it's flying into um, areas for recreational purposes or maybe leading um, hunting trips 
into these areas. There's a whole huge economy associated with just the, the access and use of federal lands um, that I think a lot of times goes unseen. Right. Um, we all think about those iconic things like campgrounds or um, visitor centers, but there is a there is this huge number of other folks that are accessing and using um, our public lands that um, really drive these local economies. So who, so it raises a good question, I mean, especially with the multiple use agencies. So when we talk about public lands, who's the public in the public lands? I mean, who who gets to decide at the end of the day when you have competing, when you have uh, outdoor recreation advocates who want more outdoor recreation or you want uh, tribes that have particular interests or you have uh, industries that have particular interests? Um, who in a in a political world, who gets to... Who has a louder voice and how does the political process sort that? Is it just who, who, who's louder at the time, who has the most votes, or how, what's the process for trying to make sense of what the public is in public land? Well, I think that's, that's the challenge of it, right? Um, we have elections, whether you're talking about state lands, uh, federal lands, uh, private lands, uh, um, Indian trust lands, we have elections that help us sort out some of these things, but that's the challenge day to day. Um, and we have a process laid out where the public has a role in that. Um, we get to consult with the public, talk to the public, take comments, and really make informed decisions based on that process. It's not always a smooth process or, or pleasant, but, um, but it does provide us with a multitude of opportunities to gain um, information, input, and hopefully at the end of the day make that decision that's going to serve um, going to serve the American people best. But it's not its not an easy process, but it's the one we signed up for. All right. Well, I wanted to turn uh, to an issue that obviously is on top of minds for, for most all of us, which are the wildfires in California and the tragedy out there. And I know the Secretary is out, uh, Secretary Zinke is out there today. I know um, uh, Forest Service, obviously, big, yeah, I mean, it's a consuming issue, just not California, but it's a consuming issue. I know in in uh, in their work, and just to get just to get some perspective. I mean, what what needs to be done here at the end of the day? And and you all are the managers, but this seems to be whether it's it's real or not. Everything I've seen is you get more acres are burning every year. You know what what's the response? Um, and and living out west, having gone through a fire season myself, where you know you're you're August in Montana you know I took my family down to Grand Teton for a weekend and we never saw a Teton uh, at Grand Teton <laughs> because it was just just smoked in um and I know some of this is natural too i mean this is i mean it's it's not like uh, the country's been immune to fires we've had uh, and even since the introduction of humans to the continent where we've had prescribed burning going on but um but i thought you know again with this issue so fresh that it would be great to to get uh, your perspective and i know we we were talking about like, you know some of this in california is the santa monica mountains which is a national recreation area right under the park service so very close to home to you yeah, well it has been a, a nationwide it's it's been an amazing uh, fire year uh, the while in fire, people no longer talk about seasons. It's it's fire. Something's burning in this country uh, every time of the year. When when the west stops, Everglades will start to to burn. Uh, so, uh, I will say one thing: uh, the California issues, the fire at Yosemite, uh, the fire at Whiskey Town, especially at Yosemite. Uh, the Forest Service had the incident management team that was there, and what went on as far as fire management there, Chris was 
was amazing. What it, it did finally reach Yosemite, uh, but the acreage was minimal because of all the work that was done by the Forest Service and the and the crews that were there to uh, to uh, to prevent that. But um, it is it's it's an issue. Uh, it's it's one that our secretary is definitely uh, concerned about with with active uh, forest management, um, and it's it's one that certainly. Uh, uh, with with the wildland expertise that we have, the the thousands of people involved in in, in trying to control these fires, uh, it's it's and it's devastating this year with what it's done to to personal property and and to and to life uh, there. Um, the secretary's efforts in the two years that he's been at the department is that uh, Park Service our management has been curtailed a little bit because eighty something percent of of our units are managed as, as wilderness. They're not all designated wilderness, but they're managed as wilderness. And um, so the active forest management is, is not quite what it is on, on Forest Service land and, and probably BLM land. But there's a concentration uh, in the department this year, especially where we can do sensible things around buildings. Uh, I think we're up to 3,900, 30, 35 or 3,900 structures that we have done active management around to basically uh, take that on. But it's a uh, it's a major issue for all of our federal agencies. The coordination in the West is is unbelievable, uh, and also and also in the East. And um, the secretary takes it very seriously. Is is why he's out there now looking. At, he, he's made it an issue with the Congress as far as. Uh, the appropriated funds for for what we do for fire management, but again, I have to compliment our our sister bureaus in the department and also the uh, the Forest Service for uh, how we do try to to coordinate and and try to control these these uh, massive fires. All right. It it is our cert our, our greatest crisis and challenge right now. Um, just a few things to put out there. We every year we seem to say the same things, but this year. We had the most expensive fire season on record. We burned more acres with fewer fires than we've ever seen before. The fire, even though we had fewer fires, the fires are larger. The consequences are larger. Um, I was just looking at some of the stats just in California alone. If we look at where we are this year and just every year how it increases. So this year alone, if you just look at homes that were lost, single family residences, it was um, more than 10,000. Um, and, and if you look just back into like 2014, 15, that was in maybe the hundreds, a total of more than 12,000 structures lost. And then you put into that the number of lives that have been lost and that we're watching happen. It is a, it is a crisis for us. It is a, it is an outcome of a lot of things. It's an outcome of us actually suppressing fires in the West where fires were normal. Um, but we've been putting out those fires for a long time and we haven't been thinning the forest at the same rate that fire naturally did. We're building communities closer and into those forests. Um, and so you put these two things together and you, you, you have this call, which, you know, you alluded to in terms of Secretary Zinke and Secretary Purdue has said the same is our primary focus right now and almost every other, um, asset of our mission delivery net right now is focused on how to support this is active management, thinning of those areas where fire is not just burning, but it's burning to catastrophic effect. That limits the ability for recreation, livestock grazing, the ability to provide a sustainable um, timber harvest out of an area when you just lose it all. More importantly, endangered uh, species habitat, 
broad habitat for hunting and fishing, we're losing entire areas due to catastrophic effects to wildfire. Um, and we know this is a disaster that we can predict. We know what to do to actually mitigate and reduce the threat of it. Um, the challenge is the cooperation, the partnerships, the resources, and the efficiencies it takes to get there. Right. And it is a landscape scale issue. Right. And, and it, is, it a, is it a challenge also because so much of this hazardous fuel may not be commercially viable at the end of the day? So you have to pull resources to actually do it? I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, this is one of those those challenging arguments. And in, in fact, I was just sitting with my wife last night showing her side-by-side pictures of areas that um, we've excluded fire from, and you can see the large trees and then the hundreds of stems of small trees. You have to remove that in order to reduce the fire danger. The problem is, is that um, you're either paying a pile and burn it, or we don't have the markets yet to really pay for the removal of that material and use it. They're emerging. Um, and often we have to leverage the value of the bigger trees when we're thinning so that we can remove the smaller stuff. Right. You know, it is this, you know, I, I think sometimes when we talk about fuels management, folks want to say, well, just only focus on that small stuff. And that is important for reducing fire. But the economics of it, right. you almost have to leverage the more commercial pieces, the larger trees, in order to remove that. Or there has to be a greater focus on developing market, uh, markets such as, um, a CLT or biomass use in order to remove that like material. a like a forest. We we talk about forest resiliency bonds. That's right. Know, where you could get together with a municipality to protect a watershed by thinning, and then somehow have revenue come in that uh, would make it worth. Well, yeah. Worth look at the Tahoe bonds. National Forest. They the the Blue Forest Group out there just passed their. They just brought forward their first forest resiliency bond, fifteen thousand acres. Um, it, the money is being, there's $4 million being raised by private investors. Um, it is utility companies, insurance companies. We will essentially raise the money to reduce the fuel loading in that area. Over two to five years, we'll get that work done, where for us, it would have taken us 10 to 15 years just through appropriated dollars. Forest Service is actually only investing in $600,000 for that work. I mean, those are key leverage partnerships and conservation finance that we're just starting to walk into now. Um, I wanted to ask everybody, and this is, a, this is sort of a big question. It's a two-part question. I think I know what Chris's answer to part two is already, so he could probably get a, a, get a pass on that. But I wanted to ask you that in the first years of the uh, administration, what has been the biggest accomplishment for each of your agencies? And then what is the biggest challenge going forward for the next two years that you'll focus on? And Marshall, do we... You start, start sure. down there with you. Sorry to put you on the spot right away. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I think revenue generation is probably the easy answer, and so I'll give that one to Casey Hammond. But um, I think I think our biggest accomplishment thus far is opening the door to all stakeholders, you know, giving everyone a seat at the table. And I do this every day. We sit down with people um, who have an interest in this beyond what everyone else does. And, I mean, I'm relatively new to DOI, but I'm not new to hunting and fishing and hiking and camping. I mean, we, um, we, we look at all policies through that lens, uh, the lens of people who care about public lands. And these are the people who should have a seat at this table. And I think, um, you know, I, I think I get the sense that that wasn't always the case. And so that's maybe the biggest accomplishment that I've actually, you know, been a part of and, and, and proud of. And in terms of uh, challenges, 
I think along those same lines, it's it's a time thing. You know, the hourglass is already flipped over, and there's only so much you can do. And you know, the department is uh, thousands of people who are really smart and care about conservation. And I look at it like a library, a resource of individuals who have been doing this for a lot longer than I have. And I um, am amazed at how much I learn from them on a daily basis. And I would say if there's any major challenge, it's you know our own operating rules set by Congress and probably time. But um, that's what I would yeah. say. Thank you. Sure. It wasn't having America's uh, best restroom. <laughs> so it's for true Myers. story. Yes, true story. One of the national wildlife refuges, uh, Ding Darling, uh, was declared America's best restroom. Mm. Yeah, That's pretty, something I, to be proud of. That is something to be proud of. Chris, uh, I'll, I'll keep mine mean, short. Yeah. Um, so one, I want to. We've also under Secretary Purdue a great focus on uh, customer service mm -hmm. and getting back to really making sure that our doors are open to all of our customers and and how we're serving them. Uh, as a whole, this year we produced more timber than the last 20 years, um, and the, the highest level we have, and we've treated more acres for fuels reduction at the highest level than we have in, in more than 20 years. So I think that's great. a great accomplishment. Great. Casey? So revenue generation. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that that's actually a big one. Um, I think we've done a fantastic job at that. That's been one of our goals. We had a billion, nearly a billion-dollar lease sale in New Mexico in September, um, the first, it was a two day lease sale. The first day, um, broke all our records for any given year that we'd had in the past. Um, so that, that's one thing that we're really proud of. We're going to keep pushing and we're going to keep encouraging. So I think you could look at our regulatory agenda. The president has given us a ton of freedom and encouragement to pursue, um, an aggressive regulatory agenda. And I think that's going to be one of the lasting things we do. But honestly, I have to go back to what Marshall said. We, we try to stick to our, our priorities that the Secretary has laid out. And one of those is um, a building trust, restoring trust with our neighbors. So whatever we do, uh, we always look at it through that lens, restoring trust. And, and in my prior life, prior to working in the administration, I worked um, on the Hill, on the House side. And that's something you dealt with every day, is people that had been uh, mistreated um, uh, or, or, or otherwise just had really bad experiences uh, with their federal government. And to have that be one of the top goals of the secretary has been extraordinarily refreshing. But even more than that is seeing the reaction when you go out west in particular and you meet with the county folks and you meet with the ranchers and, and just to see how happy they are that you talk to them. That was one of the huge eye-openers in the first couple of days. People would come in or you'd return their call and you say, you're returning our call? <laughs> and they were shocked. And that was, I mean, I was happy that we were making those changes, but it was also very depressing, the fact that that was such uh, an achievement. Um, Back to the public and public land, right? And yeah. Reaching out to the, and, uh, to the, and so that's, the public. And so that's something the Secretary has laid out for us, and I think that's our number one goal is restoring trust. And I think we've made good strides towards that. Great. Dan? Yeah, we've we followed that same uh, uh Guidance from the secretary, we've, we picked 50 gateway communities and have really gone back to really meet with our neighbors and, and, and have discussions and, and that's been unbelievably successful. Uh, we also had the issue of fees, uh, for people who don't like fees, uh, that's understandable, but, uh, for the fee increase that we, that we did put into effect, which was broad based, uh, uh, 
had a dollar amount that uh, that was that was thought very carefully and 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 in the scheme of things very fair, but uh, especially for it to be broad based for all the units. Since they keep 80% of that fee in the park, it's amazing what gets done for the visiting public uh, with, the, with those fees. So the fee increase was one major issue. And then a tremendous amount of time and effort has been spent on the pending def- uh, deferred maintenance bills in the Congress. Um, to, to, to sit here right now today with, with over 215 co-sponsors in the House, uh, bipartisan, almost 50-50, uh, with members, a Democrat and Republican, uh, 33, it might be more now, but 33 senators, uh, equal, equal between the two parties. Um, that, the importance of that bill to the Park Service to, to, to address our deferred maintenance, uh, would be the probably the most major piece of legislation that Congress has passed in years. Um, for, for the for uh, for the park service, so a tremendous amount of time and effort's been spent on that. It still has momentum on the hill, and uh, with what's left in this very short legislative uh, year for this session of Congress, we're still hopeful that that will pass. But but a tremendous amount of time and effort in coordinating that with the House and the Senate, uh, and the Secretary uh, has been very very active in in carrying that out. And, and, and that's close to $12 billion worth of deferred maintenance. And then you have cyclical maintenance on top of that, right? I mean, it just it keeps compounding. So being able to dig into this issue is hugely important. Yeah, it, it never ends. It, right. and, and, of course, the gray area is when does, when does cyclic become, become defer, uh, you know, deferred? Right. And, uh, and, uh, but, but our deferred is, is the things that just yeah, uh, haven't haven't we haven't kept pace with right and and connect connect maintenance back a lot of times people hear maintenance backlog and they think oh that's just buildings and things like that but connect that to conservation because there really is a at the end of the day addressing the maintenance backlog at least I see that as a it's a conservation issue at its core I mean isn't conservation well, about taking care of what you already own well right? it certainly is uh, and again ours is you know almost equally divided between buildings and and between roads. Uh, uh, people, I think it's 1,500 either water treatment or, or sewage type of plants facilities we have that that's never going to get the public's attention. But with 330 million people visiting, we have to have those updated. I joked with a congressional committee that was out at, at Yellowstone earlier this year. Uh, we visited two areas in Yellowstone around the Falls area where the where the parking and restroom facilities now are ADA compliant, where they weren't uh, before. Um, where where we had uh, ADA ramp for people to actually go down and, and, and view the falls, whereas before they would have had to stay in the parking lot while their family went down or the family would have had to carry them down. So um, just the, the deferred maintenance is real, uh, and, and we have a chance, again, within the next uh, several weeks, whether Congress will move forward with that or not. But, again, you asked about what has been dealt with in the department and a tremendous amount of time and effort has been spent on this issue. Right. I mean, is there a sense that um, I, I hear this expression that we're loving our parks to death? Um, what you know, ma- keeping up with the maintenance backlog, hugely important, something that needs to get done. But is there is there more that needs to be done here? I think th- I think about when I go to Yellowstone. There's that there's that great uh, arch, the Roosevelt Arch, and I get to look at the cornerstone that you know is dated. Um, I think it was like April of 1903 that Teddy Roosevelt laid, but it says above there for the benefit and enjoyment of the people and um, how much of the? How do you balance the visitor experience, you know, with their enjoyment and benefit? At the end of the day, if 
we've got crumbling infrastructure or crowds are so overwhelming. I mean, what's the, is there such a thing as, you know, is access, we want to provide access to all Americans, but at the same time, to the detriment of conservation, how do, how do you balance that in the, in the parts? It, it, it certainly is an issue. Uh, I, I, wish, I wish there were uh, six months of the year that people travel like they do in the three key months of the summer, but this is a nation that, that travels in the summertime when, when children are not in school. Um, we're, we're, of course, we're looking at transportation issues. Uh, uh, we're looking at broadening the seasons where people certainly, if you don't have children in school, you should visit in, in, in May in part of the country or in, or in October rather than in June, July, or August. But, uh, it is, it is a blessing and a curse that, uh, that, that so many people do visit. But our infrastructure, most of it, uh, w- was built at a time where it's just not built to capacity and, and that's, Part of the deferred maintenance. Uh, it's, it's, we've got to address that, whether it be a campground that was designed for how we traveled in the, in the 1950s and 60s to a camp, campground now that, uh, uh, just doesn't meet the needs of, of people, whether, whether it's restrooms or water or being able to park the bigger vehicles that now the country travels in. These are, they're not rocket science. They're just issues when you deal with, with the, uh, 25,000 structures that we have and the, the 5,000 miles of roads that we have, we've got to have the money to, to upkeep them. And, uh, and this bill gives us that chance to start to address. Uh, and I've, I've been in Washington for a long time. Uh, Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, Democratic Congresses, Republican Congresses, they've all talked about it for decades. And we've, we have something in front of us now that uh, hopefully they'll, they'll pass and, and then we'll move on and start to catch up with this backlog so that everybody who visits the park Parks, um, we'll, we'll get that true enjoyment that they're supposed benefit and enjoyment that they're supposed to get. Right. And the maintenance needs include trails too, getting people dispersed and out into I, the backcountry. I know in the Forest Service uh, it's the same way. There's, there's this. This is a trail truck. secretary. I have to tell you, he's uh, everywhere he goes, he hikes them, he w- walks everybody to death. And yes, trails is tra- uh, trail maintenance is is a very high issue for us. It's in the summers. It's the thing that we do with all the youth corps in the country that we that we. Uh, that, uh, I'm blanking on the number of trails, the number of miles of trails we have. It's it's in the it's in the tens of thousands of, of acres of, and I just I'm blank miles I mean, and I'm just blanking on it. But yes, trails is a is a major issue that we, especially Rick May, who's an assistant as a secretary for recreation, he is the trail guru, and uh, and trails are important. Yes, right, absolutely. You know, I think on that issue, though, I mean, if I think about, so we, I, I know with our recreation facilities, fifty percent of them we can't we can't maintain the standard roads the same way. Beyond the legislation talking about here, there are other key things that would help. You know, I look at the limitations of Granger Thigh, which doesn't allow us to use our partners or, you know, our concessionaires that are running some of our uh, campgrounds to have long-term permits that allow them to provide capital investment for new facilities and help maintain them. And so there's there's other pieces of this that I think that that those programs can become much more self-sustaining with some minor tweaks and changes in, in some of the, the guiding laws that we have to follow right now. Right. And I, I would add my comment to that, too. Yeah. And, and I was going to ask you, I mean, I, 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 sort of in a broader sense, because Chris brings up a good point, that there's this belief if we appropriately fund public lands management, all the issues go away. And funding's important, and it's important that we fund our public man- lands management. But um, but is there room for innovation in public lands management as well? Um I would say there's definitely room for innovation and technology. And um, a huge part of the maintenance backlog at National Park Service is roads and bridges. And if somebody can come up with a cheaper way to build a road, then we're halfway there, I think. 
So technology innovation, absolutely. The uh, I wanted to pull Casey in here too because there's a big issue that um, that you have to deal with, which is the proliferation and explosion of wild horses and bureaus on uh, BLM land. And uh, so is there a take us for there? a dive <laughs> into that in your world that uh, you have to deal with there. Well, if anyone, maybe tee up the problem too because I'm not sure if folks okay. here know. Well, I'll start off with if anyone's interested in adopting a wild horse and burrow, we have about 130,000 free to choose from. So we'll start there. But no, in the West, we have the uh, what's known as the Wild Horse and Burrow Act that was uh, several decades old now. Uh, and I say in the West because that's basically where your wild horses are found, Nevada, Utah, um, um, pre- predominantly those, those places. Um, and um, they're overpopulated because they're not being... Uh, adequately managed. It's been a big problem for, for decades now. Um, we thought it was a big problem at 30,000 horses. Now we're looking at 100,000 on the range this year. And what comes with that is overgrazing, which impacts um, a multitude of wildlife species, including endangered species. Um, one thing that Congress did when they created the act is they also gave uh, the Bureau of Land Management tools to deal with um, with the population. Uh, then um, they decided to take away those tools. So we have the management responsibility without the tools um, that, that were originally designed to address this. So that's where we're left right now. We basically have um, uh, a population explosion, and our, our, our options right now are to remove them from the range and then put them in long-term uh, retirement communities uh, where the grass grows greener. And they live. That's somewhat expensive. That's very expensive. So we have an issue now where we have an, ex- an exploding population, an exploding budget. Uh, the secretary has decided to take this head on. He's, he's, um, had a variety of ideas. One thing we'd like to do is aggressively treat, um, spay and neuter, uh, as you would, um, domestic animals. And we think that's kind of a common sense thing to do. Um, but litigation has held us up there. And I think as, all these gentlemen would tell you litigation holds us up and a lot of the things we work on, but in, in this area, in the wild horse and burrow issue, it's been particularly challenging. So we're going to try to do um, economic incentives. Um, I know Perk has done a lot of work on that in the past, and that's very helpful, but we're going to try to encourage people to to adopt, um, and then that's where we're at now. But I think ultimately the, the solution is going to be uh, fertility treatment. And it's not as easy as just darting them. Um, it's 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 going to be a, a, a uh, it's a complex issue, and it's going to take a lot of cooperation um, with our partners on this, and um, and some understanding from our courts. I think. Well, and, and speaking of in, incentives and some of the research we've done, and that the, the kudos to the agency because they've they announced a, a change on this fairly recently. But but it, it had been, I guess, in the past, right, that we you would charge to adopt a horse, and it's very expensive, obviously, to care and maintain a horse, and so you weren't getting a lot of adoptions. And then again, over the life of a horse, it's close to what forty eight thousand dollars if, if if the horse is held in private mm-hmm. care and not adopted. So it's so it's costing uh, a lot to the taxpayer and. And one of the ideas is if you could pay up front a stipend of sorts, and um, I think a thousand dollars is what you came to actually pay a thousand to adopt a horse. You could, if you got that horse adopted right away, you'd be saving forty-seven thousand dollars to the taxpayer. Yeah, that pays for itself in in two hundred days. It's a thousand bucks, just two hundred days, and it's paid for itself. So we're aggressively looking at that. We should have that. Hopefully, have that rolled out soon. Um, that's going to be a, a big part of this. 
Um, but uh, there's, you know, like I said, it's going to be fertility treatment. Um, and we're just, uh, we'll never stop looking for better ways to administer that. But, um, you know, they've been, they've been doing fertility treatment on horses for many, many years. But uh, we've run into some roadblocks with um, some organizations on the outside working with the courts to where that, that's um, been very difficult to address. Well, and that's one of those innovations we're talking about that it's, it's good to see public land agencies trying something new. If the, if the original plan's not working, being able to look at uh, innovations, especially incorporating mm-hmm. incentives in them. So, we have a we have a time. We have some audience uh, questions uh, that are here, and um, and and Marshall, this may this one may go to you because it's it, it says Mr. Critchfield noted <laughs> that uh, one of the biggest challenges is their own operating rules. Uh, what are the rules that create the biggest hurdles? And what policy changes could help the agency get beyond them? Well, in terms of rules, um, every national parks has has an enabling legislation that creates the rules for that park and how that park operates. Um, refuges have a different one; it's it's not called that, but they um, we have to operate inside those rules. For example. There's a huge python problem. I know I keep going back to Florida, but there's a huge python problem in the Everglades, if you've been paying attention. Um, you can't really just go in there and start shooting them as you, as you would, say, a feral hog or something like that. There is enabling legislation that gets in the way of that. And so um, there are certain programs that you, can, um, that you can invoke in order to get a handle on certain things like invasives. But in general, that's the policy. And then Certainly the Endangered Species Act comes up. Um, you know, if, uh, if you want to add an additional boat ramp e- or even a canoe launch at a National Wildlife Refuge, you have to get, um, you have to go through a, a long series, uh, a big process involving biological opinions and all sorts of things like that. And, um, these things just take time. So it's really a, it's a time, um, constraint mostly and I, I think most of them are terrific policies with the best intentions but um, we do see a lot of instances uh, with the fuels management for example where uh, some of the regulations do get in the way and and you know it, we could do more for the public and manage public lands better in certain situations if we had a more clear avenue through some of those regulations and related question for everybody what role does litigation play in management Nobody wants to take what, that what one. What role does it play? <laughs> what litigation, right? Well, no, I mean, I mean I'm thinking about the term of the qu- the question. I mean, uh, the role that it plays for us, I mean, if I, I could start with the friend. The role is it, it creates another check and balance within actions that the federal government's doing. But what I want to talk about is the, the is the impact of litigation. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the crisis in terms of um, fire, and other pieces, but as an agency, there are places in this country, I think Montana is a good example, uh, 60% of every single veg management uh, sale we put up or a timber sale puts up is litigated. And it's usually by two or three litigators. Um, this adds years of process onto what we're doing and, frankly, millions of dollars across the agency. Um, we are We have some of the highest costs for authorizing projects in the federal government. We do more EISs under NEPA. Um, we have we spend nearly $365 million a year just doing that. And it is mostly done to 
to guard ourselves against litigation. The, the, the cost that we have to try to address some of the broader um, forest health issues across this country that we're experiencing through litigation are immense. And, and, and related to that, and this, this was a question that came from the audience too, what, what is, since you brought up NEPA, what is the status of NEPA modernization in the administration right now? So from the Forest Service standpoint, we've gone through a large public process and essentially have finished uh, rewriting our internal regulations of how we implement NEPA. Uh, this was something that we announced uh, at the beginning of the year, held public meetings across the country. That uh, revised uh, our proposal of how to change NEPA is right now going through uh, interagency review and will be released to the public here sometime after the first of the year to take comments on that. And so a wholesale effort for us to change both the, the policy that we've been that we follow, but also the practice around that. Um, our our NEPA streamlining efficiencies in the agency in the first eight months essentially realized a, a cost aversion and savings of nearly $30 million. Um, and I think that's something to be proud of. Great. I think for us on that, uh, we're going through, we've gone through a similar process, but I think that where we've seen the biggest changes are adding account internal accountability to the process. And that's in terms of um, page limits, and in terms of, of time limits too. Um, there's, a, there's accountability at every step now and we're asking those people, those senior executives in the Bureau to take responsibility for those documents that are under their jurisdiction. We're asking them to read them, um, actually read the stuff that we do. I and mean, it's, it's a novel concept, but we're actually reading the stuff that the federal government is pumping out and take accountability for what's in there on certain timelines. And it, I really hope that's one thing that that stays uh, well into the future is that level of accountability for each and every executive along along the way. That if something's problematic, you don't just push it to the you know the back of the pile on your desk. You have a time to take care of this. You have a time to do your edits. You have a time to work with people, and you stick to that. And 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 you make the pro and in this way, the process can work much much more efficiently. Efficiently, and that's the difference that I've seen just in the time that I've been there. Things going from that used to take ten months will now take three weeks, and that's a huge savings. Not just well, cost wise, it's just a massive savings, but it's also accountability that I think we owe the American public. Well, um, Casey, I think I'm going to have given you the last word there because we're coming to the end of our time. And I want to thank all of you for what you do for America and for our public lands out there. We know it's not an easy, um, it's not easy work. It's an awesome task. Uh, you, you all are responsible for some of the most amazing landscapes, uh, anywhere in the world. And, um, and, uh, we're grateful for what you do because it's, it's probably not a, uh, it's a task that you don't get thanked a lot to do and having to balance a lot. But, but uh, we appreciate it for any administration that takes, takes this on because you were the stewards of some of our, our best jewels. And, um, so thank you for being here today. I'm going to ask you just to sit for a couple more minutes while I introduce our next speaker, but, um, but a round of applause for this, uh, this great team. So I am, uh, I'm going to bring up, we're going to do a quick transition here. I'm going to bring up uh, Tate Watkins, who is one of our research fellows at PERC, and he's going to give a, uh, he has been doing some research and going to give a, a short presentation on um, outdoor recreation and, and the impacts of outdoor recreation on public lands and how that might relate to conservation 
funding as well, an area that we're looking in. And, and just as a, a little bit of a backdrop, the outdoor recreation right, industry right now is generating about $887 billion uh, worth of economic activity. Uh, we know we've got record park visits happening, which is a reflection on the ground of the popularity of outdoor recreation. And um, and the industry's growing. At, you know, there was a report today from the Coalition for our uh, Natural Interests that reports that the industry, outdoor recreation, is growing at like 5% a year. So this is a big, this, this has impacts on all these land management units, and we're sort of looking at that and the interface of uh, conservation funding needs as well. So Tate Watkins, who is a research fellow at PERC, um, has been doing some research at this and some interesting things. So I hope folks will surely stick around for that. And we as a panel will evacuate and turn turn it over to Tate. So. Excuse me. Um, thank you, Brian. Um, one little aspect of public land management, um, specifically, uh, look at kind of how we fund um, some outdoor recreation on public land specifically. Um, this kind of draws on some research that we've done. A few of us have, at PERC have been working on, um, as Brian mentioned. And it's not going to be exhaustive by any means, but hopefully we'll kind of set up a few points of discussion um, for our, our next talk. Um, uh, let's see if I can get this clicker working. There we go. Is that showing up over there? Okay, there we go. Great, thanks. Uh, this first slide is um, the portion of the federal budget that is spent on natural resources and environment. So this includes a lot of things um, that are not just outdoor recreation. This is environmental protection, uh, management of land, water, and mineral resources under federal jurisdiction. Uh, on the left, you can see that as a portion of the overall federal budget. So uh, for about the past 50 years or so, that uh, has been declining as a portion of the federal budget. On the right side, you have the absolute spending there. So uh, you can see that decline as a portion of the federal budget is really due to a lot of things that have very little to do with outdoor recreation, namely entitlement spending, uh, Medicare and Social Security largely. Uh, 
Um, and in absolute terms, we spend about $40 billion um, of the federal budget on things related to natural resources and the environment. Um, just looking at one little slice of that, if I can get that to advance. Let's look at national parks. So the current National Park Service budget is about $3 billion. So again, just one slice of that natural resources spending. Um, this is kind of that blessing and curse, as uh, Dan put it, National Parks Visitation. Um, about 10 years ago, we had about 275 million visits to national parks um, across the country. In recent years, we've basically been setting records. The last couple of years, we've got about 330 million visits uh, now. Over that same time period, after you adjust for inflation, the National Park Service's budget has essentially been flat. So what that means is if we spread the Park Service's budget across visits, um, we see a picture of essentially the Park Service having to do more with less, National Parks having to serve more people with less money. Um, about 10 years ago, you would have had about $10, $10 budget dollars per visit. Today you've got uh, just under $9. Here is that uh, actual budget for the Park Service. This is after adjusting for inflation. So total appropriations are about $3 billion a year, as I mentioned. Uh, and just one aspect of that spending is spending on maintenance. If I can get it to advance here. There we go. About a third of that budget is spent on maintenance of all types. So that includes deferred maintenance that we talked a little bit about before earlier, as well as the routine and cyclical maintenance that ideally uh, is addressing, you know, leaky roofs, things like that, uh, be before they become a big problem and become overdue deferred maintenance. Um, and again, kind of uh, in the background of all this is that $12 billion deferred maintenance backlog. Um, so this essentially, to me, is a, a symptom of... Uh, Again, parks having to do more with less, serve more people with less, and not being able to address those needs uh, in a timely manner or on time, anyway. Uh, of course, that maintenance backlog comprises a lot of different items. We touched on a little of this. Um, uh, Dan talked a little bit about this as well. About half of that deferred maintenance backlogs is in paved roads alone. You've got a lot of historic buildings, a lot of different things um, across the park service, water systems, all the way down to campgrounds. But again, if we're thinking about outdoor recreation and, and how we fund outdoor recreation um, and those 330 million uh, visits to national parks, uh, let's see here. Sorry, I don't know why this uh, clicker is giving me so much trouble. There we go. Let's just look at one uh, item of that maintenance. So trails deferred maintenance across parks. Again, very clearly, I think something we'd agree that is related to outdoor recreation. Um, 
Across the Park Service, you've got about half a billion dollars of maintenance needed for trails. These are the 10 most visited parks in the country. Great Smoky Mountains on the left, all the way down to Glacier in Montana on the right. And what you can see is the dark bar is the amount of total appropriations to each park each year, or for the most recent budget year. And the light bar beside it is the amount of deferred maintenance built up in that park. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I don't... There we go. Thanks. What One thing this shows us is if we sum all those together, you would need essentially 85% uh, of those collective parks' annual appropriations. In one year, if you could channel 85% of those appropriations to just trails, taking care of trails that need to be repaired, it would take that much uh, to, to address that deferred maintenance. Essentially, then you'd have 15% of the budget left to actually run the park and serve visitors and all that sort of thing. Uh, so again, this is a symptom of parks having to do, do more with less, serve more visitors as their resources are strained. Um, so just to turn for a second, and let's look at, at states, a few sources of state um, conservation and recreation funding as well. This is data on state parks. Um, what it essentially shows is state parks are facing the same sort of challenges. You've got visitation increasing, while at the same time, um, that chart on the right is annual operating expenditures. That's essentially my kind of proxy for budgets. A lot of state parks have seen their budgets squeezed, especially after the recession. Um, so state parks are having to do the same thing, essentially serve more people with fewer resources. This um, is what I've got labeled as uh, state conservation funding sources. Now, conservation is obviously not synonymous with recreation. We kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, Brian did in, in some of his remarks. Um, but I think we'd all agree there's a lot of overlap. These are essentially funding sources for state fish and wildlife agencies. So this is a variety of state and federal sources. Um, but one takeaway that I take from this picture is these top three sources um, are all related to hunting and fishing, essentially. So the, the biggest chunk, about 35%, are license sales from hunting and fishing licenses. And then you also have two other sources that come from revenues generated by excise taxes. So Pittman-Robertson, uh, excise taxes on firearms, ammunition, and Dingle-Johnson, uh, which is essentially a corollary uh, with fishing tackle, boating fuel, those sorts of things. So these are excise taxes that are then funneled back uh, through a formula to state fish and wildlife agencies. They go to things like habitat restoration uh, and wildlife restoration programs. Now, if you talk to people at state agencies, this has become a point of concern given the trends in hunting and fishing over time. I'll just put this up here quickly, but... Essentially, the moral of the story is uh, hunting has fallen as a share of the adult population to about 4%. Um, that's about 11 million hunters today. Fishing, similar story, um, declined to about 14 or 15% of the adult population, uh, about 36 million anglers. So these are sources of concern for a lot of people at state agencies, given how much of their funding is reliant on uh, hunters and anglers. If we actually look at the revenue that comes from these two sources, uh, on the left here is the uh, total 
uh, of hunting and fishing licenses revenues. So that's about $1.6 billion per year. I'll also note, um, despite the decline in hunting participation, you don't really see that borne out in this chart. Uh, one reason, I think, anecdotally of that is a lot of states have gotten smarter at how, say, they charge particularly, particularly out-of-state residents um, when it comes to charging for tags and licenses and maybe has allowed them to um, stave off that uh, decline, potential decline in funding that they're worried about. On the right here, now this is the, the revenue from excise taxes. Um, again, this is uh, a, over a billion dollars last year, so a, a significant and stable source of funding for these agencies as well. One last source of funding I'll, I'll turn to is the LWCF. A uh, hot topic right now, um, kind of all across the board. The, the fund was established in 1965, and every year uh, $900 million of spending is authorized uh, by Congress. But what you could argue what really matters is the amount of funding that Congress actually appropriates. Um, so those funds have to be appropriated, um, and they are done so at different levels. You can see here this is... Uh, nominal dollars over the history of the fund uh, keeps that cap constant at $900 million. You've got a few categories. State grants, grants to states for outdoor recreation purposes, historically has been an important uh, source of funding for states for recreation. Um, you also have land acquisition, so acquisition by the federal land agencies, and then uh, the kind of catch-all other purposes category as well. Um, if we then look and just adjust that data for inflation, we can see a few things. One thing that jumps out to me is back in the 70s and 80s, a lot of those dollars you know, went a lot further. Essentially, you were getting more bang for your conservation buck uh, compared to today in recent years. The other thing that jumps out to me is the state grants portion has become smaller and less, you know, less significant in both relative terms to the amount that's being appropriated from the fund, uh, as well as absolute terms. Um, and so I've kind of run through those last three sources to then look at all of these plotted together. So these are those, those three sources of funding that we just looked at, all plotted on the same picture after adjusting for inflation. Um, so a couple things jump out at me off of this chart that I think underline a little bit of the way maybe we think about some of these issues at PERC, at least. Um, licenses is the, the top line there, so that's revenues from hunting and fishing licenses. To me, that's a remarkably stable and steady source of funding over time. It's also very significant to those state wildlife agencies. Uh, and that's essentially charging the user um, for their recreation. So you've got to buy a hunting license or a fishing license to go out and hunt or fish. You're directly paying into the system. And that money is then going back into those state wildlife agencies um, to, to fund habitat improvements and all those sorts of things that recreationists will benefit from. The excise taxes portion is kind of a, maybe a more indirect way to try to do the same thing. You're kind of charging the gear as opposed to the, the use in that case. LWCF, on the other hand, um, it you know kind of looks all over the place, a little bit random up and down, almost like an EKG to me. You know that big spike early on can partly be attributed to just adjusting for inflation, so you're going to have you know these kind of big spikes. But but even in recent years, you kind of see some of the randomness uh, and the up and down in what is actually appropriated. 
So to me, that represents, that's essentially the political process right there, going to Congress, asking for funding, never quite knowing how much you're going to get or how it's going to be distributed to these different categories. Um, and I think these kind of represent um, a lot of the, the underlying incentives and structures and the way we think about how public lands um, are funded and managed, at least at PERC. So hopefully that uh, set us up for some good discussion points for the next panel. Sorry about the trouble with the uh, slides, but uh, look forward to a good discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tate. I'll invite um, the rest of the folks on our second panel to come up and join us. Well, as we're getting set up, uh, first off, thank you all for joining us this afternoon to think about some of the issues facing our public lands and some innovative solutions. Um, joining me on this second panel, looking at how we pay for federal lands and innovative funding solutions, um, we have Tate Watkins, who just presented on some of the, the funding issues and funding streams, Holly Fretwell, who's a research fellow at PERC, uh, Katie Tubb, who's here at Heritage, and R.J. Smith from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, so to get us started, all of these panelists have a wealth of knowledge on public lands and have worked on these issues for a long time. Um, so if you guys wouldn't mind just introducing yourselves and telling us a little bit um, about how you came to work on these issues and what are the frameworks that you use when thinking about public lands issues. Yeah, I'll, I'll just go quickly. Um, and um, I... <clears throat> PERC for a long time has researched many different public lands issues um, from national parks to grazing policy, all sorts of issues. And I kind of came into these issues kind of following in the footsteps of uh, different colleagues from PERC, including Holly Fretwell and others. Uh, but one thing that I guess I think about a lot when it comes to public lands is ways that we can um, tap into market-based uh, tools, if possible, um, in ways that will kind of enhance a feedback loop, say, between a recreational user on a national park land and the, the public land managers who are providing that service. So um, that's kind of one, one point that I think about a lot, I guess. Awesome. Holly, what would you like to add? Hi, well, thanks for uh, inviting us here, and thanks, Hannah. Um, I've been with PERC for over 20 years and have been studying public lands for most of that time. Uh, I think my big interest in public lands started just in my use of public lands. Living in Bozeman, Montana, we are surrounded by our public lands, and we use them um, a lot, but I started to understand that there were a lot of issues on our public lands. They weren't being cared for in the same way that I expected them to be cared for. Um, a lot of the issues that we heard the, from the earlier panels, and as I started working for PERC, we started to look into what are some of the problems on our public lands and why aren't we getting the outcomes that we expect to get and how can we help change that? How can we look at the incentives that our public land managers have in today's world and try to make some adjustments so that we're actually motivating them to get the outcomes that we're looking for and lifting some of those challenges that we heard about in that previous panel um, to ensure that we can actually get better management on our public lands and maybe get some more local management on our public lands so that those individuals that are surrounding the area are the ones that have a bigger stake in those lands and also have a bigger say in how they're being managed. 
Um, I guess I would add from Heritage's perspective, um, Heritage has long been working on um, federal lands and environmental issues from the perspective of free market principles and limited government. So that, that's kind of the prism through which we look at these issues. Um, we've done that in a variety of venues, but one example that's out on the uh, table there for you all is um, setting out some principles for um, environmental management and environmental decisions eight principles, mostly focused around the idea of how do we get innovative solutions and how do we push decisions to the people most impacted by policy, the people who are actually um, living around these lands and that uh, have actual skin in the game when it comes to decision-making. Wonderful. RJ, what um, what are some of the thoughts that you bring on uh, looking at public I'm R.J. Smith with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and in the National Center for Public Policy Research. And uh, I've been working on environmental issues and particularly on free market solutions to environmental problems and to uh, conservation and land and resource management uh, since sometime uh, around uh, uh, Earth Day 1. I've always been free market oriented and, and uh, libertarian, but I've also always been a nature nut and a bird watcher. And when I was president of a local uh, nature club, Audubon chapter in New Jersey uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, the question began to uh, come up about uh, how could we protect the environment without the government? Only the government can do this. And I started writing on that. I was asked to come down to Washington to uh, write a book on that, Earth's Resources, uh, Private Ownership Versus Government Waste. And uh, then I was asked when Reagan came in to uh, uh, go to the uh, President's Council on Environmental Quality and begin to research examples of uh, private stewardship and private conservation and show how the market has done all of these things that we think government must do. The market has done these and has done them better, both pro-profit uh, pro organizations and non-profit organizations. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And thinking about these questions and some of the funding issues that Tate raised, how would you, how would you Holly, respond to the, the idea that in order to solve the problems on our public lands, we just need more money? We just need a bigger budget. What, what is your response to that? When I first started uh, studying public lands, we actually saw budgets growing on our public lands and, and for our public land agencies, and that was not solving the problem. A big part of the problem is that we don't have the right incentives for our, our land managers. We have appropriations that are oftentimes, at least historically speaking, were earmarked for certain projects, and they tended to be politically um, appointed projects that, that our politicians were really looking to do. We have um, outhouses in Glacier National Park that, that cost uh, over a million dollars to build because it was a solar-paneled outhouse, and then after a couple of years realizing that the solar paneling wasn't quite working because it's too cold, so we had to have uh, helicopters come in and lift um, the the manure, if you will, whatever whatever you want to call it, uh, lift the poop out. Um, and so it came at an even greater cost. So more money um, is not really what's going to solve the problem, at least in my mind and, and in, in the research that we've done at PERC. What we really need to do is get a closer connection from the user um, of these parks to the manager of the parks and make sure that those managers are responding to the user's desires in the park and that we can keep those resources in the park so that the, the managers can actually um, appropriate or use those dollars according to their priorities, uh, putting those dollars on the ground to manage for those uses that, that we as the, the users are really most interested in, making that direct connection and taking out, at least um, in large part, that, that political decision-making as to where those resources are going to go. Great. 
Well, in thinking about these funding issues, too, we heard a lot from our agency representatives about the deferred maintenance backlogs uh, facing their agencies. And, and you know, with the National Park Service, nearly $12 billion of deferred maintenance backlog. Um, and, and the question of how does that interact with the cyclic maintenance? Uh, Katie, would you perhaps mind kind of talking us through what's the difference between cyclic and deferred maintenance and how, how do we get from one to the other? Well, I, I think they build right into each other that eventually um, – what is uh, the occasional becomes routine. <laughs> and um, to echo what you said, Holly, uh, the answer in D.C. is always more money, um, and that's usually not the right answer. I think we've got a system that uh, is, by nature, more expensive. When you, I mean, we talked about it in the first panel where litigation is a feature of every single decision I shouldn't say every single, but, you know, it's it's a routine part of our uh, management process at this point. So I think we have a system that is inherently more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and also kind of tagging along with what Holly was saying, we have layers of management structures. We have the Fish and Wildlife Service overlapping with National Park Service, which makes all of these decisions that much more expensive and complicated to reach conclusions to. So things that should be routine mm-hmm. become extensive uh, adventures in government studies. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Tate, would you mind weighing in on then, in following up on that, how how can we better address those cyclic maintenance issues today so that they don't become the deferred maintenance of tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I think... Obviously, $12 billion of deferred maintenance, that's a huge hole, essentially, that we've dug that will have to be addressed somehow. But if we think of that routine maintenance and doing what's right today so that that routine maintenance doesn't become deferred and overdue in the future, um, I think user fees can do a lot with that. I know Holly has done a lot of uh, work on FLORIA, uh, essentially legislation that has allowed parks to charge fees in different ways and, importantly, retain some of those fees so that park managers are the ones, um, superintendents are the ones uh, who are able to decide how those fees are best used and maybe address these maintenance needs today before they do become deferred maintenance in the future. I think there there are probably a lot of tweaks and reforms that could help them, give them more uh, control and ability to do that even better also. Can I add to that, Hannah? We've had a number of conversations with different national park uh, supervisors, Don Stryker up in Denali for as as one example there. And and Stryker really brings out a a point that we don't hear very often, and that is when we look at this deferred maintenance problem, we're looking at all the deferred maintenance on all the different park infrastructure and units that exist out there and trying to bring them all back into some um, ability to, to manage and use those facilities again. But some of that is not sustainable. Some of those simply we don't have the money to maintain them on a day to day basis, yet we're continuing to build on this deferred maintenance and saying we need to take care of all these problems. But what we really need to do is make sure we're looking at the priorities out there, and it's the park managers that tend to have the most knowledge there. And which of these units do we actually have the ability to sustain and, and the resources to sustain, Those are, and, and the ones that are actually being used as well, that our, that our population is interested in using, those are the ones that we sh- really should be focusing on. And that deferred maintenance uh, backlog is likely to look something slightly different than the one that we tend to hear about. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about fees already and kind of the role that that can 
pay play in helping provide some of this funding for lands and and maybe we can start with RJ and thinking about some of the private conservation approaches to these things how what examples do we have or or what current approaches do we have to fees be it on private efforts or on our public current federal lands um, looking at those fee structures and how can we improve on them what is the role of those fees in providing the the maintenance funding well, I feel somewhat like uh, Dr. No in a James Bond movie here. Um, I believe that all of our attempts to make uh, socialist ownership of land and resources uh, more efficient are essentially doomed to failure. Uh, as the uh, leaflet announced in this conference said, it's a fundamental question of ownership. And you get very different incentives with a socialist ownership of land and resources than you do with private ownership. It has nothing to do with the, the quality and ability and nobility of the managers or, or the amount of money that they have. I think it's a, a, a Sisyphean task to assume that we can get uh, better management, approved, uh, improved management of uh, federal ownership of lands and resources. And ultimately, I think what we need to do is say stop. We have enough. Stop acquiring more and then begin a massive program, a very careful, uh, well-thought-out program of divestiture and devolution of the uh, federal estate uh, to perhaps some to the states, but mostly uh, through privatization to both nonprofits uh, who have a track record in, in managing all these kind of resources, a very successful track record, uh, and to for-profits. I would echo all of that. <laughs> um, and I think that's how you get to what you were saying, Holly, of um, maybe we don't need to be maintaining all of this at 100%. And I think that's where markets play in that, that feeds into the incentive structure of, okay, what do people actually want rather than what do politicians like because it's flashy. Um, but until we get to that point, which I think is the direction we need to be going, um, how do we make the money go further? And it's things like uh, NEPA reform. Um, we don't need to be spending half of the, you know, the Forest Service um, allotment for grazing permits on NEPA. <laughs> That's not actually improving environmental outcomes. Um, and I think another example um, of making fees go further is stop acquiring lands. We have 640 million acres uh, Instead of using the Land and Water Conservation Fund to increase that, why don't we focus resources on what we have? Mm -hmm. Few people ever ask the question, even look at the question, of how much land does government own? We don't even know. We don't have the figures. The best we can estimate is you total up all the land that's owned by the federal government, state governments, county governments, and local governments, and it's probably over 50% of all the land in America right now and growing. Even conservative congressmen are trying to pass a land and water conservation uh, uh, program and, and to uh, get permanent funding for that and, and make the whole uh, program permanent and to acquire still more. You ask them, what's the goal? You want 60%, 70%, 80%? I mean, they don't take care of what they have. We, we've put money lots of times into do, going back to Bush and so on, putting money into dealing with the Park Service Deferred Maintenance. And it doesn't get done. They spend it on either building new things or, or somehow acquiring more lands. Hmm. I mean, we have to break out of this system. 
Yeah. At, at Perk, we'd actually agree that, that we have some serious problems that exist out here, and, and the, I guess with the, the approach that we are really trying to take is, is really sort of echoing what Katie says here, and that is that right now we're not going to see that privatization, we're not going to see the transfer of our public lands, but we need to make sure that we're taking better care of those lands, and to do so, we really need to try to streamline some of these regulations that exist out there. We need to get the user closer to the um, to the manager so that we're responding to, to those, those managers, and we need to allow more flexibility and autonomy. If you look on our public lands right now and you have um, somebody's got a grazing allotment and somebody else is interested in seeing that, that allotment used for something other than grazing, the only way they can make that change is by going through the political process. There is no option for a non-grazing bid. Uh, if, if somebody's looking at, at, at mining um, and, and we have the, this, this bid for mining, uh, you have to bid on that, that um, project to mine, to pull something out of the ground. The only option for somebody that wants to leave that in the ground is to go through the political process. There's not a market process that exists there. So one of the things we're trying to do at PERC is to get um, policymakers to better understand the limitations in what these regulations are doing and trying to allow some more, more open doors so we can see a clearer market process to allow alternative uses on these landscapes um, that, that are more responsive to um, the, the citizens and the, the, the public owners of those lands with the understanding that these are not likely to be uh, privatized at any point in the near future. So I want to go back real quickly to something Holly mentioned about about how fees can connect the users with with the public land managers. Holly, would you mind just expanding a bit on right now, kind of what our current fee systems are, and how do those funds go go back to the lands? And are there ways for where we are right now with the current federal estate? How can we better connect connect those users and the park managers through fee systems and and perhaps some regulatory reforms to current structures? One of the first projects I worked on at PERC uh, back, embarrassingly to say, over 20 years ago, was to get fees, uh, better fees charged in our national parks and, and other park units uh, or other units of, of the public lands, but we focused on the parks to start with. But the important part was that most of those fees needed to stay within the unit where they're collected. So under under what is now called PLURIA, the Federal Lands Recreation Enhancement Act, fees that are charged in our parks, 80% of those fees actually stay within that unit for park managers to determine how they're going to use those fees. They do have some restrictions um, that I would uh, argue a little bit with, but nonetheless, 80% of those fees are staying within the park, so the managers can actually take those fees and put them back onto the ground. Problem is that only about 118 of our 417 parks um, are able to charge fees, and when we look on our other federal lands, there, there's some strict limitations as to what types of units can charge fees, and so we don't have a, a lot of fees being charged. What we have found out, if we look at our national parks and, and sort of do a calculation across different parks, it wouldn't cost that much for most of our, for, for many of our destination parks, I will call them, those popular parks, to be entirely operationally self-sufficient. It's less than $14 per person per day in Yellowstone National Park to pay the full operations budget based on our existing visitation to that park. That's not exactly pricing people out when we're thinking of what people are paying just to get to the park. There are certainly some parks that exist out there that we could not charge fees for to actually be self-sustaining uh, because they don't get the visitation and maybe we don't want that massive visitation in some of those areas. But again, the real key here is to make sure that those, those revenues are staying within the parks because then we're making that land manager responsive and accountable to the users. And if they're not producing a good product that, that somebody wants to come see, they're not going to get those visitors to come back, and they're not going to continue to see those revenues collected. Great. 
And I'll open this question up to, to the whole panel, um, thinking of where we are, and, and clearly there's some different views on where where we want to be all the way down the road. Um, but for where we are right now, we can look at other examples by um, international land management agencies, state, local groups, private groups, um, kind of doing this crowdsourcing approach. What do you think are some of the best examples out there, be it uh, public-private partnerships, state-level efforts, state agency groups, private organization efforts? What do you see as some of the best lessons that we can take from those other outside groups and bring to our current federal land managers? I'll just quickly speak to that maybe kind of in the context of fees that we've been talking about. Um, And really, I think there's a a lot of, or at least some low-hanging fruit out there um, in terms of restructuring fees, giving uh, parks uh, a lot more flexibility in the ways that they can set fees and then also use fees uh, that they do collect. You know, one of those things might be surcharges for international visitors who've already paid a whole lot of money to get um, to parks, uh, you know, we see this in, in park systems from Ken- Kenya and Tanzania to Chile and lots of other places. Um, it seems like a really sensible way uh, to generate more revenue uh, for the parks that obviously desperately need it. Um, uh, and I think, yeah, there, there are a lot of other examples. Um, and one reason, you know, m- parks, the Park Service doesn't have a ton of flexibility uh, and doing those t- sorts of things, I think, is one reason that you saw the proposed uh, fee increases uh, about a summer ago, um, a year ago this summer, that did kind of set a lot of people off and drew a lot of backlash because it was kind of this blunt instrument um, proposal to raise fees significantly as opposed to maybe a more structured, uh, flexible way to do it. I think we need to recognize that uh, we went terribly astray in this country uh, when we slipped into, I think, inadvertently a lot, government ownership of lands. Um, I think that was inconsistent with the founding principles of this country, and I certainly totally disagree with the idea that the national parks, socialist ownership of land is America's best idea. I think it was one of the worst ideas we ever picked up. It was a return to the to the uh, ideas that uh, of the tyranny of the kings and emperors and dictators of Europe, and I, I think by getting on this uh, on this approach, when all these things can be done and have been done privately, uh, morally and uh, and more efficiently, I think we're now on a green brick road to the uh, road to serfdom, mm-hmm. uh, to the days before Magna Carta. I mean, we just keep adding more and more and more, and I don't see how you can maintain a free and prosperous society when the government owns the lion's share of the lands and resources. I think that has to be a goal of us, all of us who believe in a free society, that someday we want to move, in, begin to move in that direction, and the sooner the better. RJ, sorry to interrupt, but real quick, you mentioned some some examples of maybe privately managed parks or things like that. Would you mind sharing with us just a quick example of maybe a, a model we could look to, um, something that you've studied well, in the past? Well, very close by for uh, what I consider a beautiful park is uh, is Sugarloaf Mountain out in, uh, in uh, western Maryland. And we have uh, uh, properties, wildlife refuges, magnificent refuges uh, owned by the... Uh, uh, the um, um, National Audubon Society. I mean, the Audubon Society own, owns hundreds of uh, refuges around the country. Massachusetts Audubon Society itself, one state, owns 59 different refuges. 
And it, it's, it was actually somewhat of a historical accident that we ended up with Pelican Island uh, becoming the first national wildlife refuge because it was the Audubon Society, it was their, their early uh, naturalists and hunters and bird watchers who were concerned about the slaughter of the birds that were nesting on that island, the, the terns and gulls and pelicans and so on, who went to Teddy Roosevelt and talked to him to ask him to arrange to transfer or they wanted to buy that land from the government and set it up as one of their early wildlife refuges, which they were doing all over the country. And unfortunately, Teddy couldn't find an easy way to do it at the time. He didn't, uh, apparently, that was before that, that we had, uh, the president had a power to declare something, uh, uh, to uh, issue his, his own uh, decision on what to be done with it. And he couldn't figure out how to transfer it to the Audubon Society, so he declared it a refuge. But Audubon's been managing themselves, not only owning their own refuges, but they manage many of the existing national wildlife refuges around the country. Uh, particularly on, on the Gulf Coast of the United States. Mm. I mean, there, there are examples like this everywhere. Uh, you could just, you know, go on endlessly listening to them. But I think those are the th examples we have to look at, and I recommend we do. Holly, would you maybe speak to some of the uh, public-private partnerships that happen and kind of what that means for yeah. our federal lands? I would say there's, there's a number of, of public-private partnerships maybe to help us sort of to, to get in, in the, between these two extreme pictures of, of sort of the, the, the public land and, and, and the total private land. And it is um, through a number of different entities. The Forest Service, about half of our campgrounds on the Forest Service are actually managed by private um, partners uh, with the Forest Service. They are managed as a as a unit. Um, that Basically, the, the private individual leases that landscape and they, they collect all the revenues, they clean up the garbage, they take care of the, the campground, they return a portion of those revenues back to uh, the Forest Service. We can think of our park concessions. Most people are actually familiar with park concessions when you go into the national parks. Most of our park stores um, are actually privately uh, managed, and then a portion of those revenues are going back to the National Park Service, and, and a portion of those revenues are oftentimes also used to go to uh, help maintain some of that infrastructure to help sort of prevent some of that deferred maintenance. I think one of the more interesting ones that, that we should be really taking more advantage of is there are private institutions out there um, and private firms out there that are actually leasing full park units, and we're talking about state park units or, or full um, uh, other types of federal land units, but the entire, the entire park, the, and they are actually leasing that entire park out, managing the entire park, generating revenues, oftentimes charging fees less than the, the park service itself or than the state park service was, was charging for those, taking care of the, of the land. The only thing that they are not responsible for is, is enforcement on those lands um, in the sense of police enforcement. But they are able to actually generate a profit by managing these lands, even when we're looking at lands that, that the, the state park unit itself wasn't making money previously and was a drain on the, the, the state system. System, individuals can come in because they're so much more efficient. They have a they have a, a business drive, they have a profit drive, and they don't have to abide by all the same regulations, and especially by the same regulations for whom you can hire. So they can actually hire people that are more appropriate to do the type of work that they're looking to have done on those landscapes. And those are examples that I think we really need to look to more for our public lands management. I'll just add quickly on that if I can. Um, Please do. Thinking of, you know, marginal practical steps maybe to get toward better, you know, land management of public lands um, that maybe at least draw on principles of, of markets and incentives that we've talked about. Um, you know, there are a handful, it's definitely a minority, but um, national park units that are actually managed, um, either joint owned or managed by other kind of third party, party entities, if you will. 
Um, so one example that, that I've, we've looked at a little bit is uh, Tallgrass Prairie National Reserve in Kansas. The Nature Conservancy owns about, I want to say, 10,000 acres or so of this preserve. The National Park Service owns uh, a few dozen acres, I believe, and essentially uh, is responsible for maintenance of vis the visitor center there and a few historic buildings. But it's essentially a way, uh, maybe a marginal way, to um, kind of blend some of these management principles we're talking about. So thinking about how uh, kind of congressional funding interacts with our public public lands, we've heard a lot recently about some of the Restore Our Parks and Restore Our Parks and Public Lands Act and the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which Tate just kind of showed us the history of and the, the funding allocations there. Um, so these, are, these funds are kind of based around the idea that we can use uh, royalties from energy production to help fund fund our land management. And there's a wide range of thoughts out there on, on whether this is a good idea, a bad idea, or how we can improve kind of existing ideas. Um, so I'd like to ask the panel up here, kind of what are your thoughts on this approach? Um, you know, what are ways we can either improve upon it or, or, or how do you think we should proceed in tying our public lands funding to our energy production? Heritage has uh, <laughs> seen the renewal of the Land and Water Conservation Fund as a step in the wrong direction when it comes to um, <clears throat> actually solving our financing issues and good management. Um, there's, a, there's a host of reasons for that. In part, we don't see it as a federal function to subsidize state and local decisions um, that uh, messes with the prioritization that states and local communities need to engage in. Um, I think, Tate, you also showed where that money actually goes, and I think it's primarily now a federal acquisitions program, not a state program, even though it's billed that way. Uh, <clears throat> going back to that, that, that's contributing to the problem that I think we have, 640 million acres. We don't need more millions of acres. So from that perspective, we would like to see uh, that fund fade off into the sunset. But if we're talking about, you know, if, if there are ways we can improve it, um, maybe turning it to completely maintenance funding um, on existing lands, not additional lands. And I think something interesting to maybe tie oil and gas uh, reforms with this, going back to something you said earlier, Holly, you know, letting other people... Um, bid into oil and gas leases, uh, not just oil and gas interests, but also tying that with land and water conservation fund um, reforms. So if the fund is going only to maintenance of existing lands and anyone can bid on oil and gas leases, uh, the incentive, of course, is to keep those oil and gas lands in production to maintain our lands. Uh, but, you know, if conservationists want to bid in and outbid Exxon or whomever, they have that option. So ultimately, we would love to see it disappear. <laughs> I agree um, with you to, to a large degree. and um, But the, the problem I have, the thing I worry about, if, say, you take land and water conservation funds and then earmark them to maintenance of the parks or something like that, again, you, you have the, the, the eternal problem of who will guard the guardians. I mean, we've seen these kind of things from time to time. The, the, all of the deferred, uh, the money uh, provided to the National Park Service for, for deferred maintenance that doesn't go to what it was supposed to do. Uh, the big scandals we had, uh, what, 20 years ago, what was it, when they found out that uh, 
uh, Robinson Pittman money wasn't going to uh, to uh, in, increase services to sportsmen and then build uh, uh, docks and, and boat ramps and so on. Uh, it had been misappropriated and used uh, for other things by the, by the federal agencies. And I think that's an internal problem that you're going to have. And that's why I would prefer to just uh, see if we can find a way to finally kill the Land and Water Conservation Fund, no more acquisition, and then find other ways to manage what we have as we go through a process of devolution. And Holly and Tate, I know you guys have worked quite extensively on LWCF and also the Restore Our Parks Act. What do, what do you guys think about these ideas? I think we need to clarify, um, first of all, that, that when we look at land and, uh, LWCF, Land Water Conservation Fund, most people don't understand that 50% of that fund was to be set aside specifically for land acquisition at the federal level. That is problematic. I agree 100%. That that is problematic. We already have um, enough land. We have trouble taking care of those lands. There is there is the question about some of those inholdings and other pieces that might might um, help streamline some of our uh, management of, of those lands. Um, but, but nonetheless, if we're going to continue to acquire more land, we're going to continue to see problems. So at, at PERC, we've, when we've looked at this, we say, well, half of it's going towards federal acquisition. The other half of that fund was to be going towards state lands for, for various different state projects. But bringing it to sort of the public land level, we, we definitely need to allow those monies, if we're going to see that, that fund continue, to be going to those priorities for those federal land managers. Again, maybe it's going into defer, deferred maintenance. Uh, but if we're just putting it in a deferred maintenance, once again, we're restricting our land managers to say, you have to spend this money on deferred maintenance. They have a better understanding of what the priority are on that landscape, and if we continue to put things into deferred maintenance, but not into our day-to-day -day cyclic maintenance, we're going to get more deferred maintenance, right? We need to make sure that we're taking care of those lands um, that, that we have today, and we're taking care of them on a routine basis for starters, which again, I think we have a lot of different fee options and public-private pri uh, partnership sort of options that we can enhance that so we can get better sustainability and, um, and self-sustainability on many of those lands, uh, but we also want to make sure that we're not just allocating money just for deferred maintenance, that we're allowing it to go towards where those priorities are. Um, again, thinking about the incentives, right? When we say you have all this money for deferred maintenance, what are our public land agencies and the managers doing? They're saying, oh, guess what? I have all this deferred maintenance, right? So that so that money can come to me instead of saying I need to take care of those day-to-day -day problems and make sure that, that we have this cyclic management that's being covered so that we don't have increased deferred maintenance in the future. Yeah, I'll just add, I mean, I completely agree too. We should absolutely take care of what we have already before we look to adding, you know, anything new, any new park units or uh, uh, land to the federal estate for that matter. Um, but you act about, asked about the Restore Our Parks Act. Uh, the, the one thing I'll just mention on that is, yes, there is a reality of a $12 billion maintenance backlog. Um, but even if you say you could magically snap your fingers and fill that hole with energy money or whatever it is tomorrow, if those underlying incentives and issues don't change, then you're going to have a $12 billion backlog in 10, 20, however many years. So I think it's important just to keep that focus always in the background. I think that's a, a great point, Tate, in that it kind of brings us back to your first question, Hannah. You know, it's, This is not a money problem. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of uh, governance issues that if we don't deal with them, if Congress doesn't get back in the game on those, um, we're going to continue fixing these problems in court and continue having uh, backlog problems. 
And just real quickly on the point you made about kind of, we think a lot about what we might term conservation leasing, you know, letting conservationists say bid on that oil and gas lease or whatever it is. But, um, you know, one thing that came up a few times today is, is litigation and this uh, idea that agencies do have to deal with litigation. It's just a reality. And if you actually gave, you know, conservationists and essentially anyone who wanted to bid on those leases a seat at the table, you know, we I would say you'd find some positive, some, you know, mutually beneficial uh, ways to overcome these issues um, that don't involve all the litigation and just the time that is eaten up, especially in those cases. Great. Well, thank you, guys. Um, now, we'd love to hear from you guys in the audience if you have any questions for our panel. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things today from kind of management idea reforms to funding reforms to some specific uh, policies and potential funds out there. Uh, do you guys have any questions that you'd like to ask our, our panel here? And uh, to point out uh, one of the items that RJ brought up, the fact that government, federal government doesn't have an accurate land inventory. Um, GAO has, since 2003, listed managing federal rural property as one of the high-risk areas in the federal government prone to waste, fraud, and abuse. And the fact that we actually do not have an accurate inventory. Um, GSA is the actual portfolio manager of the federal government, and theoretically BLM, uh, Forest Service, and all the other agencies should be sharing their data, but they just don't do that. Um, are there any, uh, from a transparency point of view, are there any pilot programs in different states where the governors have implemented this kind of land reform effort to increase transparency to figure out exactly who owns what and where it's located and the status of it is? Uh, any thoughts uh, at the federal level or state examples you would like to point to? I can't point to any uh, examples that are successful, but I can um, agree with your statement there in trying to look at the uh, acreage across uh, the federal lands um, over a 20-year period. It is extremely difficult to come up with numbers that match from the same agency, let alone when you look at two different agencies and, and, and try to sort of tabulate what that looks like. I think the best that I've seen, um, but only focusing on the federal level, is I think it was the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, a couple years ago, tried to map all of this and um, did a really good job layering all the different agencies so you can see who owns what and where um, and get down to very granular level. But again, that's just the federal level. That's, that's not getting to state and counties. Awesome. I think we have some other questions over here. So, hi, my name is Richard Ranger. Uh, question I have kind of to Holly's and Katie's suggestion that parties desiring some other outcome for federal lands or federal resources could bid in the lease sales or the, the usufruct sales that are that take place for those. Um, that, that sort of sets up the possibility that, say, coastal South Carolina, which has now shifted to opposition to offshore oil and gas leasing, could, in you know, through some mechanism, um, bid on um, or take some action to prevent drilling for oil and gas offshore South Carolina, um, that parties desiring not to have mining occur could somehow bid in the, uh, you know, in, under some new system. Um, it sets up the possibility, sort of Mr. Smith's comment, whereas maybe in the 19th century, individual individuals desired exploitation 
of um, resources. You've got examples like Pumalin Park in Chile, which was the, I can't think of his name, but it was the Esprit uh, Fortune guy who bought the largest area of land, I think, then purchased on planet Earth for conservation. Is, is that an outcome um, that you see would work in, in many instances? I'm, I'm, I'm curious because it poses some interesting policy choices uh, in the future. Um, I haven't looked a whole lot at the, the mining, especially on, on offshore drilling, but I do think by allowing uh, tradable rights that you can come up with a, a better market solution and you can come up with better cooperation. Tradable rights means that just because I've bid on um, it to be for conservation, that doesn't mean that it is now closed and it's only conservation for, for perpetuity. It means that it's a tradable right and that at some point in time somebody else could come up and, and we could negotiate to some other outcome, for, to some other potential use. Um, I haven't thought, again, for the offshore or uh, drilling as to what that might look like. We've looked a lot more um, at grazing rights, and, and I, I think that, uh, that a lot of our, our ranchers actually have some valid existing rights out there, though, even though we call those um, allocations privileges. But if we actually gave them the right and then they had the ability to transfer that right to somebody else so that we're not taking something away from them that is already capitalized into their into their ranch, then we could, we could see some of this tradability take place and allow those markets to function. But I think the key is that we have that tradability that continues um, throughout that market. So we're not stopping the market. We're not just buying it out. We're actually allowing it to be continually traded over time as, as the, the demands and the values change. Awesome. I think we probably have time for one more question. Maybe in the back. Um, I, I just wanted to follow up. I, I'm, I'm very glad, Holly, to hear you, for instance, recognize the sense of rights that may indeed have a kind of common law origin uh, or, or common law style uh, uh, use, usufruct systems that emerge, especially in the Western United States, that most of the people in the East don't understand at all. Um, one concern I have is the last time that there was serious discussion of these ideas. This sounds almost like a panel that I could have that I could have heard during the first Sagebrush Rebellion. And one concern I have is that I haven't heard a lot of address of the kind of state and community level issues who perhaps don't hold uh, property style interests as ranchers might in, in, in grazing rights associated with their, their private land. And yet the sense that was left since there wasn't an equal footing, since those lands didn't become state lands, or, or municipal lands associated with those uses when you, when we lose forestry to environmental priorities. Obviously, I think in a kind of absurd ways that I haven't heard a, a, an articulation of how the states or the interests of the communities that were originally reflected in the use of these public lands could be reflected in the privatization systems, uh, that you, that you, that you speak of in bidding terms. Go ahead. Okay. I don't know if this begins to answer your question, but I think that gets back to where I was starting with. We we need to push management decisions to the level closest um, of the people impacted. Uh, so states and local governments and private actors, I think, are where the best decisions happen and the best accountability. I think that's one of the problems we have with the system now is um, – those state interests, those local interests, don't get heard very easily, and when they do, it's through very um, heavy-handed means. Um, so I think that's where we need to get to. 
excuse me, I think some good examples of that working are actually outside of the Department of Interior. Um, good example is Department of Energy and Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Those two uh, agencies work with states to come up with kind of an, an agreement level where um, the state will manage regulation. The, the state runs operations. And I think the Forest Service and Interior do that as well. Um, Jason Hayes from Mackinac Center just came out with a paper talking about how the Forest Service has tried to work with the state of Michigan to let Michigan run the show. Um, and I think you get some better solutions there where uh, state regulators know better who their people are and what matters to them in those communities and how to get people to come to agreements that are mutually beneficial. So I think that's where we need to go if that's, I think, where your answer or your question was going towards. Yeah, just to sort of continue that, some of the um, new policies that are coming out, well, we have yet to see exactly how successful they are, but coming out of the Forest Service, we have what's called the Good Neighbor Authority Policy, and that is actually allowing the Forest Service to work with the state trust lands, and the state trust lands are actually doing some of the forest management after it's through the NEPA process. It's still going through the federal NEPA process, but then those local managers have more ability to do manage on those landscapes. But, we, but it, I think we also really need to keep in mind that those local managers are going to respond to the incentives they have as well. So we need to be really careful careful as to what sort of management structures we have and who we're transferring those lands to because they're going to manage according to the incentives that they have. Our state trust lands are, are out there to generate revenues. They do a great job generating revenues. Um, if that's what we want, then that's a great model for us to follow. But we really want to look at what those different models are and what the outcomes that we're getting from those are and what the incentives are. Because if we actually follow the incentives, um, we, we can pretty much tell what sort of outcomes we're going to get. And I would suggest that on our federal lands right now, if we follow the incentives, we are getting exactly what we would expect to get from the federal land management given the incentives and the regulations that our federal land managers have to abide by. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. And as we wrap up, just one closing question for the whole panel. Um, kind of, We've talked about so many issues today, but going forward and looking forward, uh, what do you think is the most important thing for our public land managers to keep in mind as they decide how to steward and allocate our natural, natural resources? Uh, that no management does not equate to good management. <laughs> and I think we're in a default system of no management simply because federal lands are so diverse and huge. Mm -hmm. uh, no management is not necessarily good management. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Tate, do you have something you'd like to close with? No, I, I agree with that 100%. I think Katie said it well. Awesome. RJ, do you have something you'd like to... Well, I think they should at least have the humility to recognize that uh, no matter, you know, how noble their intentions are, they are trying to manage a system in which all the incentives are perverse insofar as the long-run uh, protection of the resources that we all want. I mean, we all want recreation, we want wildlife, we want to hunt and fish, we want to hike and do these things. And I think the moral and, and economically efficiently uh, way to do it is privately and not through state socialism. Excellent. Holly, a final word? You know, I would come right back to the policymakers and said, say it's really not up to the public land managers themselves. It's up to the policymakers to, to create incentives that are driving our policymakers and allowing our policymakers to come up to the outcomes that we're looking for. Awesome. Well, thank you, panel, for joining us and sharing your opinions. And thank you, everyone, for joining us this afternoon to talk about these issues. Um, we're going to have a reception following. So if you didn't have a chance to ask your question or if you're interested in chatting with any of our panelists uh, further about these issues, uh, we'd love to talk with you. So thanks, everyone. And thank you, Heritage, for putting on this event with us.